Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Good evening, everyone. For those of you visiting us for the first time, welcome. For those of you who are here again, welcome back. I'm Dave Shikitano. I'm the Dean of Science here at NYU Abu Dhabi, and I'm very pleased to introduce tonight's speaker, Spencer Wells. But I'd like to remind all of you that the, the talk tonight is the second in a series of five. We began with Professor Ahab Abuaf, who spoke about Islam and evolution. And after um, Spencer gives his talk in uh, January 24th, we have Svanta Pabo coming to talk about archaic humans. Terry Harrison from NYU in New York will come on February 20th to talk about human evolution in context. And Fatima Jackson will join us on March 12th for a talk about genetic anthropology. So please feel free to join us for this very important series. I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker who I, I have to tell you I've been a fan of for a very long time and only finally got to meet him today. His work is absolutely transcendent in the field of biology. He was for over a decade an explorer in residence at the National Geographic Society and the director of the Genographic Project that collected and analyzed DNA samples from hundreds of thousands of people around the world in order to decipher how our ancestors populated the planet. In the process, he's actually launched consumer genomics industry as part of the scientific efforts. Professor Wells graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Texas at Austin and received his PhD from Harvard University. He then went to Stanford University for a postdoctoral experience and then to Oxford for continuing postdoctoral work. In the process, he has published over 90 papers that have been cited well over 3,500 times. He's appeared in many documentary films and is the author of three books, The Journey of Man, Deep Ancestry, and Pandora's Seed. His work has taken him to more than 100 countries where he's collaborated with everyone from heads of government and Fortune 500 corporations to tribal chieftains, eking out a living in places as remote as Chad, Tajikistan, and Papua New Guinea. He's a real biologist. He lives in Austin, Texas, where he's the founder and CEO of a relatively new company, a startup called Incitome. He's an adjunct professor at the University of Texas, and he's the owner of an iconic blues club as well called Anton's. The title of his talk tonight is The Human Journey, A Genetic Odyssey. Please join me in a warm welcome for Spencer. Is this your first visit to the Emirates? Uh, no. no, well, second time, in Abu Dhabi. second time in Abu Dhabi, so welcome back. Thank you, Dave, for that Great introduction. It's, it's always funny to see people's reaction when uh, the Blues Club comes up. Um, it's good to have a little side hustle. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm going to tell you tonight about the work that I do as a scientist. Um, it is very much ongoing. I'm, I just got a, an email earlier um, about a, a um, poster abstract that we're submitting to the AAPA conference that's going to be in Austin next spring, so still very much a scientist, although I do run companies these days. Anyway, my work as a scientist is in the field of human population genetics. Now, what is it that we as human population geneticists do? Well, we study DNA, and I'll tell you about that, but really the grand theme in our research is to explain the patterns of human diversity we see around the world. We travel, or we walk down the street in a major city, like New York, and we see people that seem to be so different from each other and from ourselves. How did those patterns arise? And how different are we really when we peel away the, the surface features that distinguish us? That's really the overarching theme in our research. But like any big theme in science, you can break it down into sub-themes or questions that we can start to chip away at using the tools of science, gathering data, formulating hypotheses, coming down on one side or the other of that hypothesis. The first question we can ask is one of origins. Do we, as a, a species, spring from a common source? And if so, when and where? 
Where did we all come from? And the second is one of journey. If we do spring from a common source somewhere on the planet, where did we start to migrate to? And how did we come to occupy every corner of the globe in the process of generating the patterns of diversity that we see today? Origins and journey. Well, the question of origins, as with so many other big questions in biology, seems to have been answered over a century ago by Charles Darwin in his perhaps second most famous book after The Origin of Species, a book called The Descent of Man. He wrote, in each great region of the world, the living mammals are closely related to the extinct species of the same region. It's therefore probable that Africa was formerly inhabited by extinct apes closely allied to the gorilla and chimpanzee, and as these two species are now man's nearest allies, it's somewhat more probable that our early progenitors lived on the African continent than elsewhere. Okay, so we're done with the origins question. We can pack up and head on out to the pub. Well, not quite. Darwin, of course, in this statement, is talking about our shared ancestry with the other great apes. And it turns out he was absolutely right, even though he didn't have a lot of data to support this hypothesis at the time. We now know that the great apes originated in Africa at a time when Africa was actually disconnected from the rest of the world's land masses due to the vagaries of plate tectonics. It bumps into the Arabian Peninsula between 16 and 18 million years ago. And at that point, some of the apes started to leave. And the ones that migrated eastward and down into Southeast Asia ultimately became the gibbons and the orangutans. And the ones that stayed on in Africa evolved into the gorillas, the chimps, and yes, us. So yeah, Darwin's absolutely right. If that's what you mean by origins, we share an origin in Africa with all great apes around 23 million years ago. But that's not really the question I'm asking. And it's probably not the question that you're most interested in asking either. Rather, I wanna know about us. We as a species, Homo sapiens, where did we originate? Creatures that we would recognize as being the same, if you will, if they were sitting out here in the seventh row. Where do we come from? Well, that's historically been approached through the study of paleoanthropology, going out and digging bones up out of the ground, the work of the Leakeys and Lieberger and so on that you read about so often in the pages of National Geographic and elsewhere. What I'd like to suggest, though, is while the field of paleoanthropology gives us lots of fascinating possibilities about our origins um, and where we all came from, it doesn't give us the probabilities about direct lines of descent that we really want as scientists. Possibilities, but not probabilities. What does that mean? Well, this is a good illustration of that. What you're looking at here are three potential human ancestors from left to right, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, and Paranthropus boisei, otherwise known as Nutcracker Man, all uncovered from the same location in northern Kenya, and all dating to roughly the same time, about two million years ago. So which one of these three am I actually descended from? Three potential ancestors living in the same place at the same time couldn't be descended from all three. Which one am I related to? I don't know. Possibilities about our past and our origins, but not the probabilities about direct lines of descent that we as scientists really want. Well, we as geneticists take a, a different approach. Instead of digging things up out of the past and guessing at how they may or may not connect up to the present, we start in the present and work our way back in time. A genealogical approach, if you will. Because it's a certainty that everyone alive today had parents, and those parents had parents, and so on. So in principle, it should be possible to create a family tree, a genealogical tree, if you will, for every living human being. Problem is, if anybody has ever built their family tree or has a great aunt who has done it for the entire family and tells you all about it over Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners, um, the problem is with genealogy that the written record runs out at some point in the past. You may be able to go back two, three, four, maybe even 10 generations, but at some point you hit what the genealogists call a brick wall and there is no written record leading back beyond that point. We simply enter this dark and mysterious realm we call history, and ultimately prehistory. But it turns out we're all carrying what is in effect a written historical document about our ancestry inside of ourselves, inside of nearly every cell in our body, in our DNA. And it's our DNA that allows us to see back beyond that genealogical brick wall, back to the very earliest days of our species. 
Now, a quick primer on DNA for those of you who have not taken molecular biology recently. You know who you are. There will be a quiz. Long linear molecule, the famous double helix described by Watson and Crick in 1953, for which they later won the Nobel Prize. It's composed of four subunits. We denote them A, C, G, and T. And it's the sequence of these A's, C's, G's, and T's that basically provides a blueprint to make another version of you. And it's a lot of information. There are billions of nucleotide bases, these A's, C's, G's, and T's, in the human genome. It's a lot of information. And in every generation, you have to copy all of this information to pass it on. And because it's your blueprint, it's kind of important. So you want to make sure that you're copying it accurately. So there are proofreading mechanisms built in. However, just as if you were copying a very long text, how long? Well, think of War and Peace. Imagine a thousand volumes of that. And you've got to copy this by hand. And you're going to be very careful in copying it. But inevitably, what's going to happen during that process, copying all of those tedious, long volumes, you're going to make a typo, a spelling mistake. This happens at the DNA level as well, as it's being copied or replicated in every generation. They occur at a very low but a measurable rate of around 100 mutations, as we call them, typos that occur during the copying, 100 mutations per genome per generation, ticking off in a clock-like fashion. When these mutations get passed down through the generations, from children to grandchildren to great-grandchildren, they become markers of descent, such that if you share one of these genetic markers that originated as a mutation with another person, you share an ancestor, the person in the past who first had that change in their DNA and passed it on to the two of you. Now, what do these look like? Well, this is a little bit dated these days. People still do use Sanger sequencing on occasion, but this is taking you back. It's easier to see, though. These are five individuals that have had the same regions of their genomes sequenced. They've been lined up. And when you compare them, the first thing you notice is that they're basically identical, G, C, C, T, and so on. It's actually very difficult to find these genetic markers that we use to study human relationships. They only occur on average at one in every thousand nucleotide bases for people who aren't even closely related. So we have to look quite hard. But if you look down in this region, GGG, GGG, GA, G, a single letter change from a G to an A, that's an example of one of these genetic markers. If you share that A with another person, it means you share an ancestor, the individual who first had that change in their DNA and passed it on to the two of you. And by studying the pattern of genetic markers in people around the world and asking a very open-ended question, what does it look like? Focusing in initially on two pieces of DNA that have proven to be incredibly valuable for our study of human origins and migration patterns, mitochondrial DNA found in the mitochondrion, which is a um, structure in the cytoplasm of the cell that is basically where respiration takes place, so it's the powerhouse of the cell. The energy is generated there. If you think about the way fertilization occurs, the sperm and the egg, the sperm donates DNA to the nucleus, but nothing to the cytoplasm as far as we can tell. Um, the cytoplasm comes from the mom. Therefore, all the mitochondria in your cell or in that fertilized egg came from your mother. And therefore, mtDNA tells us about a purely maternal line of descent, your mother's 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 mother. The equivalent on the male side is the Y chromosome the tiny little runt of a chromosome that doesn't do very much for us other than to make men, men. Mismatched with its partner, the X, and because of that mismatch, it does not go through the recombination process, which I'll talk a little bit more about later, that affects the rest of the genome. And the Y chromosome, because it determines maleness, tells you about your father's 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 father. These two pieces of DNA, Again, looking at people from around the world, their pattern of genetic markers, we've been able to create trees for everyone alive today. Everyone on Earth, all seven and a half billion of us, fall somewhere onto one of the branches of these trees. Kind of amazing. Well, these are actually very simplified versions of the trees that we use when we're designing the assays in the lab. There are actually thousands of branches on both of them. We're up to 10,000 or so on the Y chromosome side now. But they're still a little bit complicated. 
sitting out there in the audience, especially if you're not used to looking at phylogenetic trees. So let's simplify them, combine them, turn them on their side so that the roots at the bottom and the branches come up the top like a real tree. What's the takeaway here? Well, it's that the longest branches and the deepest split in the tree is found only in African populations. And because the length of the branches is proportional to the number of these mutational changes that we've had over time, ticking off in that clock-like fashion, what that tells us is that Africans have been evolving for longer than any other group, in effect. They've been accumulating changes in their DNA for longer. And it's only recently that a small subset of Africans left that continent to populate the rest of the world. We are, in effect, all African. Okay, well, that's gotten us back to where we started with Darwin, hasn't it? Well, not quite, because we're not talking about an ancestor that lived in Africa 23 million years ago. Rather, we're talking about a human ancestor that lived in Africa, ancestors of everyone alive today, as recently as 200,000 years ago. It's a blink of an eye in an evolutionary sense, and it's only within the last 60,000 years that we've left that continent to populate the rest of the world. That's 2,000 human generations. That's a really, really short expanse of time. We are much more closely related to each other than we ever suspected before we started mucking around with DNA. Humans are 99.9% .9 identical at the DNA level. And it's a reflection of this shared recent ancestry. And really deciphering the details of how we've come to populate the world, the migratory routes along the south coast of Asia, down into Southeast Asia and Australia, reaching Australia by around 50,000 years ago, later migrations up into the Middle East and Central Asia that led into Europe and ultimately into the Americas in the last 20,000 years. Deciphering these details, the great Paleolithic wanderings of our species, and how more recent events, like the dawn of the Neolithic 10,000 years ago in places like the Middle East and Southern China, that's really been the subject of, of my work as a scientist. And that was the goal of the Genographic Project, which we launched back in 2005, was to figure out all of these migratory routes, how humans have populated the, wor populated the world over the last 60,000 years. Genographic had three core components. Um, at its heart, it was a research effort, field research that we were doing around the world in many far-flung places, as you heard, New Guinea and Tajikistan and Chad and so on, worked with indigenous populations, the world's indigenous and traditional peoples, so vital to our understanding of migratory routes, how we settled places around the world over the last 50,000 years. Now, why are indigenous groups so important? Well, think about your own ancestry. I'll think about mine out loud. I have ancestors from all over Northern and Western Europe. I live now in central Texas um, and am standing here talking to you in Abu Dhabi. What does my DNA tell you about the ancient history of any of these places? Not a lot, because I'm a mutt and I have ancestors that have moved around a lot recently. Ideally, we need to be looking at people that have lived in the same place for a much longer period of time, for many, many generations, ideally, thousands, even tens of thousands of years, to get a glimpse of these ancestral genetic patterns. These are the world's indigenous and traditional peoples, so vital to our understanding of the human journey. But at the same time, while we were designing the project back in 2004, I felt that it was important to open it up to anybody who was interested in joining us, because it is the story of all seven and a half billion of us, not just the world's 100 or 200 million indigenous people. It's the story of everybody. And so we created a DNA kit, a public participation component to the project, as we called it, um, allowing people for the first time to you know, buy this kit and send their DNA off to a lab anonymously, um, get the results reported back on a website, discover something about themselves, but also actively participate in the scientific research. Um, it was really a first. Moreover, by doing that, by purchasing one of these kits, they helped to fund the field research that we were doing with the indigenous people around the world, as well as the third component of the project, what we called the Legacy Fund. And this is a way to give something tangible back to these indigenous groups around the world, many of whom are the poorest of the poor and are marginalized in already very poor places. 
um, often forced to leave behind their ancient villages, their homelands, for better lives in typically a growing megacity, Mumbai or Sao Paulo. When they move into these environments, the kids stop speaking the original language, they learn the language of the dominant culture, they stop hearing the stories, and within a generation or two, that culture has gone away. We're actually going through a period of cultural mass extinction at the moment that is somewhat like the biodiversity crisis that we all hear so much about. Linguists tell us that of the 6,000 some odd languages spoken on Earth today, by the end of this century, between half and 90% will be gone forever, most of them never having been written down. So, um, because I feel, and those of us who were involved in the project all felt, that cultural diversity is what really defines us as a species, this is a bad thing. I mean, if you think about it, we don't have that much going for ourselves physically. We can't run like a cheetah, and we can't fly like a bird. We don't have warm fur like a snow leopard. We don't have a hump on our backs like camels, and you know, can't stay out in the desert for weeks on end. But we can invent cultural ways of doing all of those things, and of sending people to the moon, and sequencing our own genomes. We're pretty amazing at the cultural stuff, and that diversity is what allowed us to become so successful. So when we lose, a part of that diversity. We lose a part of what it means to be human. And so the legacy grants were an effort to try and help cultures preserve their own history and their own sense of self. Well, the project ran from 2005 to 2015, as you heard. How did we do? Well, still ongoing. Um, we have a lot of data. Over 72,000 people from indigenous populations around the world, over 1,000 populations, every continent, joined the project. Um, we've published over 60 scientific papers on this work, um, with a couple of dozen more, as far as I'm aware of, um, coming through over the next couple of years. So very successful scientifically, made a lot of really cool discoveries about early migrations and population splits in Africa. And, um, interesting things going on with the Phoenician um, spread across the Mediterranean, just to give a couple of examples. Now, how do we do on the public participation side? This is the real surprise, or at least it was for me and others involved in the project. When I stepped out on stage in April of 2005 to announce the project to the world with press and ambassadors and so on in the audience in Washington, D.C. at National Geographic headquarters, a few minutes before I went out on stage, the then CEO of National Geographic, a guy named John Fahey, um, who had formerly been CEO of Time Life, pulled me aside and he said, Spencer, we're really excited about this project at National Geographic. Really cool stuff. We think we're going to find out a lot of fascinating things about who we are as a species. But I got to tell you, this whole public participation thing, you need to soft pedal that because honestly, I know consumer behavior, nobody's gonna spend 100 bucks to test their DNA. If you sell 1,000 of these things in the next few years, you'll be lucky. Well, we sold 10,000 the first day. Um, we had 100,000 by the end of the year, and continued, Genographic alone continues to sell about 60 to 70,000 kits a year. It spawned a whole industry that we now call consumer genomics, so we launched that in 2005. 23andMe came along in 2007, Ancestry DNA um, came along in 2012. Um, genographic kits alone have been sold in over 140 different countries. So we've sold in places like Kazakhstan and Chad, two in Vatican City. I would really love to know who bought those <laughs> and what the results were. Um, <laughs> so it kind of created this whole industry that we now call consumer genomics, which is, I'll talk a little bit more about this toward the end, but it's really an exploding field. Um, Ancestry DNA, which is part of Ancestry.com, dominates right now. Um, you've heard a lot about 23andMe. They do a lot of marketing, but Ancestry is actually selling most of the kits that people are buying. They sell a million a quarter. Um, so around five million a year if you take into account the holiday bump. Um, pretty impressive. And to think that uh, Mr. Fahey told me we'd be lucky to sell a thousand of these things. There you go, John. <laughs> Anyway, that success helped us not only to do the field research, but also allowed us to give away over two and a half million dollars um, through the Legacy Fund. Just some examples of the 95 grants that we funded over the course of a decade. A project to preserve the Agnobi language 
Um, spoken by around 1,500 people living historically in the remote Zarifshan River Valley of, of northern Tajikistan. Most have been resettled now for various reasons, some of them environmental. There was also a massive earthquake in their, their home valley. Uh, but resettled to the capital Dushanbe, their kids, as I said before, becoming part of the dominant culture, learning Tajik and Russian rather than Yagnobi. And this very much an example of a culture where within a couple of generations, the language was going to be gone and that sense of cultural identity was going to be gone. So we helped them to create some school curriculum um, in the Yagnobi language, uh, giving the kids a reason to want to speak this language because often it's because the, the kids don't want to speak the language their parents spoke. They want to become part of, again, that dominant culture. Now, why is Yagnobi important? You know, it could be one of, a number of languages that are in danger of going extinct. In this case, this is actually the last remnant of what was once the lingua franca of the Silk Road, ancient Sogdian. So if you'd been trading goods anywhere from the Caspian to the ancient Chinese capital of Xi'an in 500 AD, you would have been speaking something very close to Yagnobi. And so when that language goes, we lose that insight into that critical part of our past. Another project with um, an Aboriginal group in the Northern Territories of Australia trying to preserve their, their song lines and the associated traditional dance patterns, um, their stories of where they came from. And we've actually found some really interesting correlations between some of those song lines and the genetic patterns we see. Project on the Yukon River um, in southeastern Alaska, northwestern Canada, the healing journey to raise awareness about environmental issues that are affecting the salmon population there. Salmon is critical to everything in their culture in that part of the world. And then a really interesting project for the, the people who perhaps need a more pragmatic reason for preserving cultures. Um, I'm sometimes asked, well, isn't this just social Darwinism? You know, some cultures are in the ascendant because they're better, they have certain characteristics that make them more universal, and unfortunately that means others have to go away, and that's just the way life is. This was a project that we did with the Shuar people living in the foothills of the Andes in Ecuador to try and preserve their traditional botanical knowledge, their ethnobotanical knowledge. And much of that knowledge centered around plants that they used medicinally. And what I respond to these people who say that it really doesn't matter, we don't need to save these cultures, it's an inevitable process, is think about the medicines you're prescribed by your doctor. Ultimately, 30, maybe 40% of those trace back to plant sources. And we often know about these plant sources because of accumulated traditional knowledge. Anybody who's taken aspirin, that comes down to us from the Greeks who used to give willow bark to women in childbirth because it reduced the pain. Um, so we isolated the active compound from that. How many potential treatments for Zika virus or HIV or even cancer might we be missing out on if we lose all of this knowledge? If you think about thousands of cultures over tens of thousands of years through trial and error, early science without publication, unfortunately, um, all of that knowledge that's been accumulated is in danger of being lost. And so it kind of behooves us um, if for no other reason than that, to go out and try and preserve it. So some examples of the, um, the legacy fund and what we funded with that. Now, I'm often asked by people, journalists, you know, especially as the project was wrapping up, what's been the biggest surprise for you? And you know, they were thinking, of course, about scientific discoveries. Oh, well, you know, actually the gorillas are running the world and, you know, we're all living in a simulation or whatever it is. It's hard to know how to answer that. But honestly, the biggest surprise for me is the excitement on the part of the general public in getting involved in the research and getting their own DNA tested. Because, you know, as I said earlier, we really had no idea coming out of the gate that anybody would be interested in this at all. And in fact, there, there was a lot of evidence suggesting that you know, people were gonna be afraid of it and weren't gonna to touch it. But in fact, everybody really got involved in this. And to such an extent, in some cases, that they actually helped to drive the science forward. And that, that really was the biggest surprise for me. It's not just you know, with large amounts of data, you can say more, we kind of knew that going in, and that's the reason we were doing the project. But it's the extent to which people driven by their own curiosity can actually help drive the science forward. And this is a great example. A couple of years after we launched the project, a woman wrote in to say, 
love what you're doing. Lots of members of my extended family have tested themselves. When we sit down for holiday meals, we talk about the results. It's really cool. It's really bringing the family together. Um, and lots of people have tested. It's really awesome. But unfortunately, hate to say it, I think you might have gotten the wrong result for me. You might have to retest me. Because you told me that I'm carrying a Central Asian or a Siberian genetic lineage. And I know for a fact that my ancestors came from a little village just outside of Budapest, which is what you're looking at here. So clearly, I've got to be Hungarian. I mean, I can show you church records going back to the 16th century. I am Central European. You must have gotten it wrong. Please retest, thank you very much. Now, when I saw this email, I got really excited, not because I like asking the lab to cherry pick one sample for retesting out of 500,000, they get kind of annoyed by that, but rather because the Hungarians are a really, really interesting population, at least linguistically within Europe. Most of the European languages, including the one I'm speaking now, and French and Italian and Spanish, the Romance languages, and the Slavic languages, the Germanic languages, and so on, all fall into what we call the Indo-European language family. And Indo-European, as the name suggests, includes languages down in India, so Hindi, is a member of that language family. Farsi, spoken in Iran, is also a member of the language family. All part of a Western Eurasian family of languages that descended from an ancestor that existed probably on the steppes of southern Russia between six and 8,000 years ago, Proto-Indo-European. And the languages have diversified over time. So almost all languages in Europe fall into that family except for a couple of outliers. Basque, which is spoken in northeastern Spain and southwestern France, could have been brought here from Mars, for all we know. It literally is not related to anything else. It's not part of another language family. There are distant, tenuous connections to ancient Sumerian, extinct ancient Sumerian, and maybe some languages spoken in the Caucasus, but for the most part, it is simply an outlier. The other interesting language in Europe is Hungarian. And Hungarian is not a linguistic isolate. It actually is part of the Finno-Ugric branch, so languages spoken by the Finns, the Sami people, the Laps of, of northern Scandinavia, the Finno-Ugric branch of what's more broadly known as the Uralic language family, as in Ural Mountains. And as the name suggests, its center of diversity is over here in Siberia. It is a Siberian language family. And this makes sense because we know that the ancestors of the Hungarians migrated from somewhere further east in the steppes and tundra of Eastern Europe, migrated into the Central European plain around a thousand years ago. And they settled there, they brought their culture with them, love of chicken, paprikash, and all of that, had a huge cultural impact. So much so that they replaced whatever language was spoken there before. Now, when we as geneticists see this, you know, this is kind of a sore thumb sticking out within the broader Indo-European landscape, we think, aha, we need to go in and test their DNA and see where they came from. Well, when we did that, went in and tested 75, 100 people, um, there were a couple of studies done in this in the late 90s and early knots, what we found was that the Hungarians are basically identical to the surrounding populations, the Slovaks and the Poles, other Central Europeans. They do not stand out genetically at all. They look pretty much completely European. So the question is, how can you have this huge cultural impact on a region without having any corresponding genetic impact? Well, when this woman wrote into the project, I said, aha, here's a chance to test out our database. So the team and I pulled all of the genetic information we could on people that had known Hungarian ancestry on their mother's and father's sides. Lo and behold, there were 2,300 people in the project who were Hungarian. And we could find Asian lineages in two to 3% of them, uniquely in that population compared to the surrounding populations. Um, Asian lineages at a low but a detectable frequency, the power of large numbers, really cool, you know, proof of concept. The really interesting thing, though, is that we wouldn't have thought to look for this pattern if the woman hadn't written into the project. Yeah, we might have gotten around to it eventually. But what drove the research in this case was someone's curiosity about their own genetic results. Empowering people to take part in the scientific process is a really vital part of what we do. 
and the consumer genomics industry as a whole. Now I want to talk now about a couple of things that have happened over the last few years. They were starting to happen toward the end of the, the project, and they've certainly accelerated um, more recently in the last two years. Two revolutions in our understanding of our common past. One is advances in whole genome sequencing. And really, as you'll see in a minute in the next slide, um, it's the cost of whole genome sequencing, the fact that it's gotten so much cheaper and so much faster to sequence whole genomes. And we can now contemplate doing genome-wide surveys of genetic variation on tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people, which would have been impossible back when we launched the project. And the second revolution is a revolution in ancient DNA. It turns out, and we've known this for 20 years or so, um, but the techniques have gotten much, much better in the last four or five years. It's possible to get genetic material, intact genetic material that you can sequence from ancient remains, from bones that are thousands, even tens of thousands, even over 100,000 years old. And it is literally like a time machine. So instead of sampling people alive today and using complex statistical models to guess at what might have happened in the past, you can literally travel back in time and take DNA samples. And if you, you know, are friendly with an archaeologist, you can be out there in the excavation with them effectively doing a transect through time. So you've got a well-studied cultural phenomenon with you know, solid carbon dates, and you know, you know the material culture, you can literally take a DNA sample from exactly that little window in time. It's pretty amazing. Now, DNA sequencing, I'm sure many of you in the audience know this, but you know, the Human Genome Project launched in the 90s, took over a decade, cost, you know, depending on whose estimates you, you believe, a billion to three billion dollars to sequence that first human genome. Um, really worthwhile project, provided a, a scaffold, a reference genome on which we could start to assemble additional genomes, and the price started to come down following a curve known as Moore's Law, which if you're acquainted with the way computer chips um, evolve, basically Gordon Moore back in the early 70s, um, one of the founders of, of Intel, speculated back of the envelope calculation, well, you know, computer chips seem to be roughly doubling in power every 18 to 24 months, or for the same power, they roughly half in, in price. And so Moore's Law has pretty much held up for computing. It's pretty amazing that it's held up for so long. Sequencing was following Moore's Law up until about 2007, 2008, when Illumina started to actively promote its next generation sequencers. Um, and they took off and became the dominant sequencing technology virtually overnight. And the, the curve at that point, the cost per genome sequence started to fall off a cliff. And it's been changing at roughly five times the rate of Moore's Law for the last several years, um, a rate of technological change that's unprecedented in human history. We've never seen anything changing so rapidly. And it is, at the moment, screaming towards zero. So you guys are getting one of the new Illumina machines in your lab um, later this year. Illumina promises that by next year-ish, you should be able to sequence an entire genome. This is the whole thing. An entire genome for roughly $100. There are other technologies, Oxford Nanopore, for instance, where you know, possibly you could sequence a genome for less than $10. In essence, though, the cost of sequencing is dropping toward zero. And again, this allows us to start to sequence many, many, many genomes, gives us tremendous power for understanding complex diseases, whether it's type 2 diabetes or disorders like autism or whatever it might be. Um, really, really great time to be a geneticist. And honestly, a time that I never thought I would see, because when I started graduate school in 1989, we were still debating whether it was theoretically possible to sequence a whole human genome. It was so big and the sequencing technology was so primitive in comparison to what we're using today. Um, it's been incredible to be able to have a career during this era. We can also utilize this technology to study in detail aspects of human diversity. So my own field, human population genetics. And we can make use of the fact, as I alluded to before when I was talking about mtDNA and Y chromosome and why they're so great at constructing these, these um, trees because they don't go through the shuffling process that most of our genome does, we can actually make use of that recombination process, the shuffling, to study details about 
the how and the why of human evolution. So not just studying markers that tell us about how closely related we are and where we migrated to, but also how we've adapted over time to the environments we live in. So if you think about your chromosomes recombining, shuffling in every generation, all those 22 pairs of autosomes, and then doing this over many generations, you can imagine that within any given population, you've got a kind of background level of shuffling, um, or linkage disequilibrium, as it's called in the field, that's to be expected for any given population. And so African populations are the oldest and historically the, the largest in terms of effective population size, a population genetic term. Um, so they have shorter regions of LD and therefore more shuffling. Uh, more recent populations, especially those with a founder effect, so you've got you know, a small number of people moving to an island in the Pacific, let's say, they've got much longer regions of linkage disequilibrium or LD. There's been less shuffling, if you will. So depending on the population, there's kind of a background expectation. You could actually make use of this, it turns out, to study these selective events, the how and the why of human evolution. Think about the background level of expected LD or shuffling as kind of different colored beads on a string. These are different chunks of chromosomes that have been recombined within the population over many, many generations. And it's kind of like a random set of beads in a necklace. What we're looking for, though, is a section of those beads that seems too similar to be accounted for by chance. What this is telling us when we see that pattern is that something in that region has been driven to high frequency relatively recently. If we were looking at a piece of jewelry, we would say, oh, well, that's, that's a fad, and everybody's decided they want that little section of beads on their necklace. So they've all acquired that. In this case, it's not a fad, it's, it's due to the, the effects of natural selection. Something in that region originated as a single mutation on a single haplotype or background chromosomal type, and selection has driven it to higher frequency relatively recently, fast enough so that it's, it's pulled along a lot of the other genetic variants on the chromosome with it. So we see that as an extended chunk of linkage disequilibrium in the chromosome. The best example of this is lactase. Um, the strongest selection we've seen in the human genome so far. So the ability to digest milk is something that many people take for granted. All babies, all mammalian babies, are born with that ability. It's the ability to digest that sugar, that disaccharide, um, and absorb it through the gut. Um, most mammalian babies, by the time they're weaned, are starting to lose that ability. So the, the gene for that enzyme is turned off, if you will. It's down-regulated. In some populations, though, farming populations in Western Eurasia, probably starting around 8,000 years ago, they noticed that if they drank the milk from the animals, they could live longer, and you didn't have to kill them for meat, and it was a really good food source. And there was a mutation that happened around that time in some of those populations that domesticated sheep and cattle and goats that allowed people to continue to digest milk into adulthood. And this was really advantageous because you know, protein was in short supply. It was a really good food source. Selection drove that mutation to very high frequencies so that in northern European populations today, for instance, 95% of people are lactose tolerant. But the ancestral state for most of humanity, except for a few populations in Western Eurasia, Indian subcontinent, and some in Sub-Saharan Africa, such as the, the Maasai who also herd and drink milk, um, the, the ancestral state is to not be able to digest lactose. So when we look in different populations around the world, so Europeans in blue and Africans in green, but not a, um, a pastoralist group of Africans, East Asians here, we see a very strong signal of selection, this peak in the IHS score, and I won't go into the details of what that is, but it's basically a measure of how long that block is of linkage disequilibrium. Very strong selection. Lactose, great story. This is a story I always tell students. It's a really easy to understand one. But you can scan across the entire genome now because sequencing is so cheap, we can do it in many, many thousands of people. And each one of these peaks tells a different selective story. This is the how and the why of human diversity, how we've adapted to the world around us as we've moved around over the last 60,000 years. So there's lactase, yeah, that's a big peak. But this toll-like receptor 
that's a story of adaptation to a pathogen. SLC, 45A2, that's the story of lighter skin in Europeans. Each one of these is a really fascinating story, a chapter in the story of you, if you will. Um, so it's a really exciting time to be alive, and whole genome sequencing is, is allowing us to answer questions that we've had for a long time but never thought we would be able to answer. Ancient DNA. Um, well, the, the sexy story, I guess, is Neanderthals and Denisovans. This is the one you might have heard about. Um, as we're leaving Africa 60,000 years ago or so, there are, are other things living out there. It's, it's a very Tolkien-esque or Game of Thrones type of world. There are other creatures that are kind of like us, but different in some ways. Neanderthals are our cousins. We share a common ancestor in Africa, probably Homo heidelbergensis, that lived there around 600, 700,000 years ago. And the Neanderthals started to leave shortly after that time. And they moved out into Eurasia, and over many hundreds of thousands of years, they developed all of the Neanderthal characteristics, so the heavy brow ridge and the, the burly torso and so on. They were still living out there when we started to leave Africa as modern humans 50 to 60,000 years ago. And of course, they went extinct. Otherwise, they'd be sitting here in the audience listening to another Neanderthal lecture to them. And the story was always that we drove them to extinction, and it was nice and simple. However, when we started to sequence ancient DNA, in particular, ancient Neanderthal DNA, we discovered that non-Africans are slightly closer to the Neanderthals than they should be. Um, it was not simply a case of us meeting the Neanderthals and seeing them off. Um, before they went extinct, we interbred with them, to put it nicely. And today, the average non-African is around 2% Neanderthal, genetically speaking. And we can even tell you about Neanderthal traits you might have inherited. It's really fascinating stuff. In fact, one of our products does exactly that. We've also discovered the Denisovans, a species that we had no idea even existed until we started sequencing their DNA. So this was a pinky bone and a child's tooth discovered in a cave in Siberia, Denisova Cave, um, in 2008. And Svante Pabo, who is coming to speak to you, one of the greats in the study of ancient DNA, um, was able to sequence the entire genome of this individual. And because it was in a cold Siberian cave for over 40,000 years, it was in very good shape. And it was actually remarkably easy to sequence that genome. And when they started comparing it to modern humans and Neanderthals, it turned out to be a different species from both of them, distantly related to the Neanderthals probably shared a common ancestor with them around the time they were leaving Africa and moving into Eurasia. The Denisovans I like to think of as kind of the Asian Neanderthals, and Neanderthals are kind of the Western Eurasian slash European Neanderthals. Um, we still don't completely understand what happened to the Denisovans. There is hardly any evidence of Denisovan interbreeding in the region where they were found, so in Siberia but we see a lot of it in Melanesia, places like Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands. We don't know why, we have complicated theories. But ancient DNA is really upending what we thought we knew about our past, changing our perception of some of our fellow human beings. <laughs> and it's even affecting what we thought we knew about history. Um, this is work that's really been done in the last couple of years on the Bronze Age in Europe, a really important formative period in the history of all of Western Eurasia, but particularly in Europe. Now, if you think about what we you know, would call human history, which is really kind of recorded history and stuff that we kind of sort of know about, this is a good example. What you're looking at on the far left is from Dame Kathleen Kenyon's excavation of the site of Jericho, which is in the West Bank. And that person in the bottom, or at the bottom, is standing at 10,000 BC. And all of recorded history is rising up above his head. Um, really kind of going into those layers and taking DNA samples very carefully is, is providing us new insights into how history has been written, how it's unfurled as a tapestry, if you will, over the last 10,000 years. So the Bronze Age replacement in Europe 
Um, you know, you may think back to the last museum visit where you were um, being led around by a guide showing you all of these axe heads and shields and so on. Um, lots of material culture from the Bronze Age, really, really important in Europe, had largely been ignored genetically because the thinking was, well, you know, genetic patterns are really old. They don't change that much over tens of thousands of years. Um, so the Bronze Age, yeah, it was a cultural phenomenon, but it didn't have any real impact on the biology or the genetics of the people living there until we started looking at ancient DNA across that Bronze Age shift. So people living before the Bronze Age, what we would call Mesolithic in Europe, and people living immediately after that. And what you see is a huge shift in the genetic patterns across literally just a few hundred years in some cases. Um, the Bronze Age Bell Beaker culture, which expanded up into Britain, might have brought the Celtic languages into ancient Britain um, around 1500 BC. It resulted in a 90% replacement, a 90% turnover in the genetic patterns in Britain. So literally, most of the population living there prior to the Bronze Age went away, and it was not a peaceful going away. Um, because we see these burial sites all over Europe dating from around that time. And the people coming in replace them. We've actually been doing some work um, which will feed into one of our products on ancestral lifestyle on a blood clotting variant, which has been driven to relatively high frequency in European and even Indian subcontinent populations only since the Bronze Age. So anything that allows your blood to clot more efficiently means that there was a lot of bloodshed that was going on around this time. So pretty amazing. And another example of how ancient DNA is really upending what we thought we knew for sure about human history. I want to talk a little bit about consumer genomics, what I'm doing these days, um, and think about how the industry has developed. So it really got its start, as I said earlier, with Genographic launching in 2005. There were a couple of little companies, Oxford Ancestors in the UK. Um, family tree DNA at that time was, was very, very small. It was basically tagged on to Mike Hammer's lab at the University of Arizona. So these were academic labs where when they would publish a study on something like, in Hammer's case, the Cohen modal haplotype, so the Y chromosome lineage that unites certain Jewish priests, um, people would write in and say, hey, can you test my DNA? I'll write you a check. So that, it was very much a cottage industry until we launched Genographic 2005. And it grew in a linear fashion. 23andMe came along in 2007, but their product was priced at $1,000, so it didn't have a huge impact on the market. They started to drop their prices in 2009, and we saw a little bit of an uptick. And things continued in a linear fashion until the end of 2012 or so, when the millionth person tested themselves through a consumer genetic testing company. So it took us, let's say, eight years or so, if you take into account some of that early stuff going on, the cottage industry phase, um, eight years or so to reach a million people testing. The second millionth person tested themselves about 18 months later. And as I said earlier, Ancestry alone is testing a million people a quarter now. Um, it is really just going up exponentially, and people are very, very excited about learning what their DNA says. I like to compare it to, you know, if, if you were an illiterate peasant in the Middle Ages, and you were carrying around this amazing illuminated manuscript that told you all sorts of things about who you are, where you would come from, where you might be going in the future, you'd be really excited to read that. But unfortunately, you can't do it yourself. You have to take it to someone else who can read it and interpret it for you. That's kind of the stage we're in right now. Hopefully in the future, everybody will be able to sequence on their smartphones and you know, do it at home Sunday afternoon, binge watch your genome. Um, but right now, you need to have a company that can interpret it for you. Um, so why did we see that uptick at the end of 2012 when we went from a million to two million very, very rapidly and then, you know, it's continuing now and continuing to go straight up, basically? Well, DNA has become part of the national consciousness. When we launched Genographic in 2005, DNA was scary. 
Um, it was Jurassic Park. It was clone armies. It was, what are you going to do? You know, we, we asked George Clooney once if he wanted to test his DNA with the project. Um, and he said, what are you going to tell me that I'm Anna Nicole Smith's you know, baby's father or something? People were very afraid of it. Um, now companies that aren't even in the genomics business talk about such and such as in our DNA. Dell Computers, you know, hometown company in Austin, um, ran a big ad campaign earlier this year that literally had a picture of a double helix and they were pointing out various components of their cloud business in the DNA of the company. So it's part of the national consciousness now. Um, also, people are much more comfortable sharing their most private information these days. Um, when we launched Genographic, there was no Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or you know, Instagram, all this stuff where people share, I would argue, much scarier stuff than whatever you might find out in your DNA. Um, in those days, you know, privacy was much more of a concern. We actually anonymized everybody who participated in the Genographic project. We had a random alphanumeric code that was printed on the inside of every kit. We did not know which code went into which kit. You received your shipment. That code was the only way you could log into the database. There was never an account associated with it that had your email address or any personal information. People started losing their codes and banging on the table and saying, I want to create an account with my email address. And we're like, okay, we're doing this to protect you. Anyway, people are very comfortable sharing their most private information now. And so we're kind of past that. And finally, I think around that time, 2012, 2013, once you had a million people testing, it was very likely if you, you know, were at a party or a conference or something like that, that somebody you bumped into would have tested their DNA. And they told you all about how interesting it was. And they discovered that they're 27% you know, you know, Scandinavian or whatever it might be. We hit that, that, that threshold for word of mouth viral spread, which is so important to any product these days because everybody uses ad blockers and tunes out ads and can't stand ads. And so it's really you know, what your friends and family tell you about that you pay the most attention to. And when your friends and family are telling you that something's interesting and kind of cool, then you tend to listen. So I think all these things went into the, the, the change. It's kind of like the film industry. Film industry is a really weird industry. You make your film and you put a ton of money into marketing, advertising, and you expect to make all that money back in a couple of weeks. Everything you spend on the film, everything you spend on marketing, you got a couple of weeks, otherwise it gets pulled, it gets you know, sent to Netflix immediately, and the film is a flop. It's only rarely that films are allowed to develop like normal products. My Big Fat Greek, Greek Wedding was a great example. Small little you know, indie film, sleeper, released in a few theaters, people started talking about it, got good reviews, and it started showing up in more theaters, and eventually it takes off. And so we're kind of in that exponential phase um, of the curve right now with consumer genomics with no signs of it asymptoting anytime soon. So it's an interesting time to, to be in the industry. Um, the big four, 23andMe, as I said, probably the best known, um, Ancestry DNA, the biggest, Genographic, and then Family Tree DNA, which is really focused entirely on genealogy for the most part. Um, and then I'll briefly plug my new company. Um, what we're trying to do, we're partnering with Helix, which is a spinoff of Illumina itself. Illumina, um, dominant player in the DNA sequencing industry, 95% of the, the DNA bases that are generated by machines around the world come off of their machines. Um, and what they're seeing when they look at this curve of the cost per genome dropping down to zero is what IBM and other big players saw with the PC industry in the early noughts, where sequencing these days is becoming a commodity. So you know, the margins are very, very small on sequencing anymore. And so they see the services um, and the interpretation as being the real value add moving forward. So they've spun off two companies in the last couple of years, which are their moonshots. So how are we gonna you know, make genomics relevant beyond just sequencing? genomes. The first is a company called, um, oh God, what is it called? Grail. Sorry, I'm jet lagged. I just got in at two last night. Um, Grail, which is their um, liquid biopsy testing company. So um, the idea is that tumor cells, in fact, all sorts of things in your body, shed DNA into your bloodstream. 
And if you're a pregnant woman, your fetus also sheds DNA, so you can literally sequence the fetus's DNA by taking the mother's blood. Um, it's kind of cool. But the idea for GRAIL is to be able to detect cancer early on before any other detection method will see it. So a scan or an x-ray or something like that. GRAIL, huge 1.9 billion Series A startup. Um, their other moonshot, Illumina's other moonshot, is Helix. And Helix is their attempt to really get into and kind of dominate the consumer genomic space. What they're trying to do is build out what will become the app store for consumer genomics. They've built a platform, the world's, one of the world's largest DNA sequencing facilities in La Jolla, so just down the street from Illumina itself in Southern California, with the HQ up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and the idea is that partners will develop products for this. And what Helix is offering is exome sequencing, actually a lot more than an exome, an exome plus as they call it, that has actually a heck of a lot more than just the exome, um, for roughly one-tenth the price that a researcher would pay for it right now. So they can do a $50 exome. Um, and that's a lot of data. It's 100 times more data than you're getting from, say, the chip that 23andMe uses. It's essentially all of the data, for the most part, that you're going to need from the genome. There's still a little bit that whole genome sequences would tell us that XM Plus doesn't. But for the most part, this is a, you know, do it once and then you're kind of done. That data lives in the cloud and then you can download apps that will interpret various aspects of it for you. So if you're interested in ancestry, we can tell you about that. If you're interested in how you metabolize milk, we can tell you about that. If you're interested in you know, tailoring a weight loss program to your genome, assuming that's possible, we can tell you about that. The idea is to really enable people to engage with their DNA in a way that they haven't been able to before. All of the consumer tests up until now have been very much one and done. You sequence once or you scan your genome once. Um, you go into a website once, you see the results, that's it. This is going to be much more engaging and ongoing. Sequence once, query often. And the idea is to create immersive, actionable genetic experiences. So my company is called Incitum. We launched our first product in August. We have another one coming out either today or tomorrow. I need to check in with the office in a minute. Um, and several more coming out over the next several months. So you can check us out at incito.me. And I think I'm probably going to end it there because I've been talking for an hour. I can tell you about the 21st century city if, if, you're, if you want to stick around. So the 21st century city, um, I'm sometimes asked about the relevance of all of this ancient stuff for people today. And of course, you know, as I talked about earlier when I was talking about my genetic results and why they don't tell me very much about the ancient history of any place in particular, because I'm a mutt, we're all becoming much more mixed. And so 21st century city, we've scattered to the wind, moving across around the world, and now in cosmopolitan cities like New York or in Abu Dhabi, people coming back together. So coming full circle. And you, know, you can track this by looking at actual migration patterns. There are statistics on this. We decided to look at it using DNA. Um, we did a project in Queens in 2008. Um, the film was released in 2009 called The Human Family Tree. Um, Queens is incredibly diverse. Um, more than half the people living there were born somewhere else in another country. Over 150 different languages spoken. And what we wanted to find out is by sampling 200 people at a street fair in Astoria in Queens, what can we say about humanity's diversity. Can we actually pick up most of the world's major genetic lineages in this one relatively small, potentially interbreeding population? To what extent are we truly becoming more mixed? And so I can actually show you a film clip. Okay, so I'm gonna end it there. Um, long story short, we were able to reconstruct um, the majority, certainly the major human genetic journeys around the world from that, that small group, again, of potentially interbreeding people. And this is a pattern that we see reflected in census data from countries around the world, not just in the US. If you look at um, people who are intermarrying between different ethnic groups, or if you wanna call them races, um, you see an increase. So from 3% in 1967 among newlyweds to 17% 
um, much more recently. This is something that's happening all over the world. We are all becoming much more mixed over time, probably a very good thing socially. Um, and so as we start to speculate about what the future is going to look like in all sorts of ways, there are a lot of big things going on in the world today, climate change among them. Um, genetically, our species is also undergoing some relatively radical shifts. The face of 2100 is probably going to look much closer to this than to the way we look today. So we can start, certainly speculate about the rate at which that is happening. And this is a film project that has been kind of lying around in the background for a long time that I'd love to do, to actually sample among the generations in different cities around the world and see to what extent we can predict what that face of 2100 might be. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.